and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today is May 14th, 2023, and we have today with us Christy Franson, whom I'll be introducing. Um, as you know, we're not strict about verse and chapter coverage, but for purposes of tracking with the Come Follow Me program, we are now at uh, Matthew chapters 19 and 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. I'm Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Rebecca Deschreinitz and Michael Austin, also members of the board, are participating today. We're using our webinar format on Zoom and we're running a live stream on Facebook. And as always, we are recording this program. Uh, a moment of uh, advertisement, I guess. In the first issue of the journal, Father Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation. It encourages me to enter into dialogue. To fulfill Jean's vision in the 21st century, we have made the current journal, 55 years of archived issues, and all of our new digital offerings available um, entirely free online for users. This has been moving away from a 100% subscription model of funding, and now we are building a sustaining dialogue fund carry the journal and associated offerings into the future. We ask for your help in creating this fund, but I want to remind you that we do publish a journal and subscriptions as well as donations continue to support the work of dialogue. And I encourage the subscriptions. The journal is beautiful and, uh, and, and beautifully uh, produced. You can find more about both the journal and sustaining dialogue fund at give to dialogue.com or at dialoguejournal.com. For today, um, we have Christy Franson with us. I'm pleased to introduce her, um, and then I will con continue with uh, uh, introducing the whole program. Christy uh, lives in La Canada, California. She is wife to Russ Franson, mother to 11 brilliant children, nine living, and grandmother to 24 perfect grandchildren. I might argue about my 11 grandchildren, but we'll, we've, we'll let that go. She graduated summa cum laude from BYU with a degree in ancient scriptures and attended Duke Divinity School. Uh, teaching, especially teaching scriptures, is her passion in life. She spent 20 years teaching early morning seminary, 25 years teaching adult scripture study classes, 15 years teaching institute at USC, Occidental College, and Glendale Community College, and she now teaches writing and reading to uh, Korean students in her hometown. She has published essays in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, Mourning with Those That Mourn, Who Mourn, articles in the, in the Ensign, and has an unpublished book, Climbing Jacob's Ladder. Christy serves as the chair of the Mormon Studies Council and co-chair of the Howard W. Hunter Foundation at Claremont Graduate University. She is the first woman to hold these positions. When she's not preparing lessons or planning agendas, Christy loves to go on very long and very fast walks, hike with her family, sing with her family, and watch British mystery shows. She feels honored. She feels honored to have been invited to teach a dialogue Sunday class, following in her oldest daughter Rosalind Welch's footsteps. Rosalind was our very first presenter back in 2020. As with every speaker and participant. We have invited Christy for her personal insights and for her voice. She does not speak for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor for the Dialogue Foundation. Um, today, 
in our program. We will open with music, a piece called Grace Before Sleep, which is a setting of a poem by Sarah Teasdale, sung by the University of Pretoria Youth Choir. And then our opening prayer will be offered by Robin Litster Johnson. Robin wears many hats, including organizational resilience and well-being advisor, fraud prevention expert, and Suzuki violin teacher. She is passionate about the Book of Mormon and its relevance to our lives. She received an MBA from BYU and a Master of Applied Positive Psychology degree from the University of Pennsylvania. She has three amazing daughters and sons-in-laws and two delightful granddaughters. Um, I'll mention him now, although we'll come back at the end. Um, Russ Branson is with us. He will offer the closing prayer. Um, Russ is Christie's husband. And uh, I'll say another word about him when we get to the end. Um, let's begin with music. Grace before she sleep. Grace before sleep. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can be gathered together across the world and using this wonderful technology to learn of thy gospel and to share for Christy. And given that today is Mother's Day, we are especially grateful for the wonderful mother that she has been and is and the example she sets for us. We're grateful that we have the gospel in our lives that we have the restored gospel to give us light and truth and help us walk this road together. We pray that your spirit will be with Christy, will, that it will enlighten her mind, and she will be able to share the thoughts of her heart in a way that will help her feel satisfied. And we will be grateful for that. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much robin and thank you all for being here and happy mother's day for all of the mothers who are out there uh it is such an honor to be here today following in the footsteps of so many people that i love and admire including my own daughter and what a perfect way for me to celebrate mother's day it was my own dear mother who was my very first and most influential gospel teacher <clears throat> excuse me and now I see my children surpassing me in every way, and there is no greater joy than that a mother could have than to see that. So um, let's set the stage, jump right in and set the stage for the stories that we're going to be looking at today. So this is the last, what I call normal week of Jesus's life before he begins Passion Week, which will begin, which will be our scripture block for next week. So Jesus has left Galilee for the very last time, making his final journey with the 12. And we're going to find out with many others, wherever Jesus goes, he always brings an entourage with him. And he does in this case as well. Um, they make their way down through Judea, through Jericho, and, and their destination is up to Galilee, uh, up through, uh, sorry, up through uh, Jericho to Jerusalem for the Passover. And that would be one reason why there's such a crowd following him. Everybody wants to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. So as you see from this map, the road from 
Galilee down to Jericho descends into the Great Rift Valley. This is a dramatic slash or crack in the earth that goes, that stretches from Galilee down, actually above Galilee. You'll see it goes all the way up to the northern part of Israel, down to the Dead Sea and beyond, exposing the oldest part of our planet. And this is the valley through which Jesus and his disciples are descending and walking during this last week of Jesus's normal life. What a perfect place for Jesus to help us open our eyes uh, and reveal important things. And of course, it's the perfect time as well. Um, this last week of normal time, while he's made this trip many, many times, uh, this time is different because he knows that this time he's not coming back. Now, I forgot to prep Rebecca, but Rebecca, would you read Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19? This sets the emotional, mental stage for where Jesus is in his mind and heart um, as he's making this last journey. So Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Can you do that, Rebecca? I didn't, I didn't warn you. And maybe you're not. I just pulled it up really quick. Oh, okay. So 17, yeah. 17 through 19, yes. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee... Isn't that actually that scene up? Thank you. That, also, that, la that next story that we launch into from here is a perfect Mother's Day story, but I'm not going to tell that story today. Um, but those of you who haven't yet read that one, be sure to read it. It's a great Mother's Day story. Mother defending and promoting her sons as mothers love to do. But so you see clearly in Jesus's mind and in his heart is what's going to be happening the following week. He is carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders as he makes this journey. Nevertheless, we're going to see that he takes the time to notice and minister to people that he meets along this road to Jerusalem. Uh, today, we're going to look at four of those encounters because I think together they form a perfect quartet to teach us about discipleship and especially about better ways to see, which I think is the beginning of every important thing in life. We're going to look at a quote by John Ruskin right here. The greatest thing a human ever does in this world is see. To see clearly is poetry, prophecy, and religion all in one. I think it's also philosophy and human relationships. Seeing is the beginning of every other important human endeavor that we do in this life. Uh, and here is how the prophet Jacob put it, to put it in kind of theological terms. The Spirit speaketh the truth and lieth not. 
Wherefore, it speaketh of things as they really are, and of things as they really will be. Wherefore, these things are manifested, in other words, we can see them plainly, for the salvation of our souls. So what Jacob is telling us here is that seeing truly, seeing things as they really are, brings salvation. Now, unfortunately for us, as it turns out, there are lots of impediments to seeing clearly in this world. Every single one of us is blind in one way or another. In fact, we were all born blind with that veil that it was drawn at our birth. And we continue to develop all kinds of vision problems, flaws in how we see God, flaws in how we see each other, even blind spots in how we see ourselves. The biggest problem Jesus faced in his ministry, my opinion, was so many people who could not see who he was or who they were. But the happy news, in fact, the truly glorious news, is that Jesus came to restore sight to the blind. In fact, this was the most often repeated and the most special, if you will, the most um, profound of all messianic prophecies from the Hebrew Bible. Just one of many passages I'll share with you. This is from Isaiah 42. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness. I will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I love that Isaiah equates blindness, this inability to see clearly with imprisonment. And and it really is. And when Messiah was going to come, as Isaiah prophesied, that would be one of the things that he would do most spectacularly and most importantly would be to open up blind eyes, open up our eyes to be able to see clearly. And nobody but God ever in all of Scripture uh, restored vision to the blind. Think about that. Uh, Elijah and Elisha did a lot of miracles that paralleled many of the miracles that Christ did, but it was only Jesus who was able to restore sight to the blind. And that was one of the great signs that he was indeed the Messiah. So today, we're going to meet four people with vision problems. And we're going to see what happens when they encounter Jesus. And so I want you, as I go through these stories quickly, I want you to look for similarities and connections between these stories, but also differences. And above all, I want you to look for yourself in these stories, because I think you're going to find yourself there. I certainly find myself in all of these stories. So I'm going to talk about each story as quickly as I can so that we have time to discuss afterwards. But please, as we go along, type your comments and your observations in the chat so that you can remember when we go back and we're going to tie all four stories together uh, and we'll talk uh, at the end. So we're going to begin with one of the most famous encounters 
of all. This story has been used in many a conference talk, beautifully depicted in this painting by Heinrich Hoffmann, Christ and the Rich Young Ruler. And what I love is that the face of this Christ in this painting here, this one here, I don't know whether you can see my stylus circling that, um, has been enlarged and made into its own painting. If you want to show this for us, Michael, um, this painting of Christ, this enlargement of that, that face of Christ, and this is the Jesus that I see in my mind when I close my eyes and think about my Savior. Um, this is the image that I see of him. So, Michael, if you want to go back to that original slide, that earlier slide. So let's take a look at this story of the rich young man. His story is told in all three synoptic gospels, which makes this a really, really important story. Um, we're going to read from the Gospel of Mark, but add a little bit of the details that some of the other gospel writers include. So turn to Mark chapter 10, verses, um, <clears throat> let's see here, 17 through 22. And when he was gone forth into the way, by the way, take note of the use of that phrase as well, the way. Um, we're going we're gonna to comment on it when we get to our next story, but that that word, I'll just tell you right now, that um, that was the the phrase that was used, the title, the the identity that was used by the earliest Christians, the earliest Christian church. They did not call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of former day saints. They called themselves followers of the way because Jesus identified himself as the way, the truth and the life. And so that that phrase is particularly evocative of the gospel path, the covenant path. Okay. So Jesus is has gone forth into the way. And of course he's also on the road to Jerusalem. <clears throat> there came one running and kneeled to him. So this young man comes running to Jesus, kneels down, worships him, and asks him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, what a promising young man this is, right? Like if ever there was someone who was just, just um, on the on the you know presenting himself as the ideal disciple, it would be this rich young man. He runs to Jesus. He kneels before him. He calls him good master. His very first question and his deepest desire is to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And so it might be a little confusing to see Jesus kind of push back. Um, when he went with his first response to this really promising young man, Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. And that now Jesus has often done that. He will often push back a little bit um, and challenge the thinking and the, the quick, ready phrases of the people who are following him. Jesus, that's one of the best things that Jesus does 
is help us to think about the things that we are saying. Do we really understand what we're saying? But I think Jesus sees this young man and he sees something that needs to be fixed, sees something that this young man needs to change, needs to think about again. So let's continue the story. And then Jesus goes on and says, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. All the Ten Commandments, these basic, wonderful laws of Moses that have been governing the house of Israel for thousands of years. And this young man, this good young man, he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And then Matthew adds, the book of Matthew adds, what lack I yet? That beautiful discipleship question. What a really, really great question for us to ask ourselves. What lack I yet? And yet, let's think about those first two things that this young man said to Christ and see if we can see the problem, the issue, the concern that Jesus saw in the heart of this young man. The first thing that he says is, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And then the next thing, what lack I yet? My friends, I, I know this young man and I know what's in his heart because I am this young man. I'm not rich and, I know, and I'm not a young man, but I share his heart. This young man so concerned about his own righteousness, his own obedience, so focused on what he needs to do and whether he's doing a good job. There is Jesus standing right in front of him, and he's focused on what do I need to do. And I think that is why Jesus pushes back and reminds him the very first thing. There's only one perfect person in this world. And Jesus doesn't even include himself in that very exclusive group, right? He's just only Heavenly Father is good and perfect. Nothing that you are will ever be able to do in your life, as earnest as you are, as eager as you are, to check those boxes. This is a checklist Jew, my friends. Just like many of us, myself, absolutely the top of the list, I am a checklist Mormon. And I think we have kind of put ourselves up to be in, in, in the past, I think we're doing a better job now, but I think in the past we have set ourselves up, all of us, to be checklist Mormons. And this young man absolutely seems to be that. I want to make sure I am doing everything I need to do so that I can earn eternal life. Okay, so Jesus seeing him, I thought, so this is, this is my favorite part of the story right here. <clears throat> And uh, then Jesus, verse 21, Jesus beholding him, seeing that earnest heart of his, seeing his, his, his deepest desire is to be perfect, to be worthy so that he can be with Father in heaven and with Jesus for the rest of his life, right? For eternal life. That's what all of us want. This rich young man wants that more than anything else. But Jesus sees, um, and, and he loves him. 
exactly as he is, which is also beautiful part of this story and, the, and why I love this, the, the, the account that Mark gives us. So let's read this again. Jesus beholding him, that word behold, to see into the deepest part of his heart and soul, loved him. Loved him just the way he was, but also loved him so much that he wants him to overcome that weakness that he has, that weakness that many of us share, focusing on our own um, our own behavior, our own righteousness, our own or lack thereof, right? Usually lack thereof. Um, and helping him see the true way to eternal life. So Jesus asks him to do the very hardest thing, something that is impossible for this young man. Said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And I also love that allusion to cross. Our crosses are whatever is hardest for us. And we typically, actually, let's, let's finish the story, then I'll go back and reflect on that. And this young man was sad. He went away sorrowing, sad at that saying, went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And then it goes on. There's a wonderful commentary and discussion that the apostles have with Christ about how challenging it is for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven because they are just so tied and connected to their, um, to their, to their wealth. Right to material possessions, to worldliness. And that is the reading that we have usually ha taken for this story. It's a cautionary tale, right? Warning us about materialism, about being too connected and too fond of our, of our worldly possessions. We can't let go of them and follow Christ. Uh, and that is a beautiful reading of this story and an important reading of the story. And I think a really valid reading of this story. And that is the reading that most people have taken and exclusively the reading that has been used in conference talks, for instance. So here's some quotes. Um, Jesus, okay, here we go. We can have eternal life. This is by Bruce Hafen. We can have eternal life if we want it, but only if there is nothing we want more. Here's a quote by Larry Lawrence from October 2015 conference. This young man was humble enough to ask, but not faithful enough to obey. And here's another one. Discipleship is less about what you did in the past, no matter how righteous and good and he was in the past. If he can't respond to Jesus's demands right now, he's not going to make the cut, right? He's not going to make the cut. Discipleship is less about what you did in the past and all about how you respond right now to Jesus. Okay, so that's the reading. And again, a really wonderful reading of this text. Beware of materialism. We have to leave everything behind in order to follow Christ. Jesus uses this great um, image of a camel going through the eye of a needle. Do you want to show that slide for us, Michael? Two slides from now. 
And here is, in fact, here's the famous gate in the walls of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And here's a camel. You can see how difficult it's going to be for that camel to make it through. There's only, there's the only way a camel could ever squeeze through that opening is if he let go of all of the baggage that he had, right? And he was on his knees. And so we use that as this beautiful analogy of us needing to rid ourselves of all of the baggage, the material things that we have that weigh us down and, and, and distract us, get on our knees, and then we can make it into the kingdom of heaven. Um, I have a second reading of this story. And I think that this young man, now, if you wouldn't mind, I'm making Michael really work today. Go back to that slide that first slide of the rich young man. So what about now? Again, that first reading, wonderful. I love it. Very important. True. But many times in Jesus's teachings, there's more than one true reading. And one of the hardest things for us to do, speaking of seeing, is to let go of the way we read these stories, the way we've always seen this young man, and look at him in a different way. Is it possible that his problem was not materialism? He just loved those, those you know, his wealth so much that he couldn't let those go and follow Christ. But instead, it was scrupulosity. He knew that there wasn't any way. It, is it possible that in fact he might have been um, the oldest in his family who was responsible for who had the birthright inheritance, responsible for any unwed women or impaired brothers or sisters that he might have to care for them or, or, or extended family to care for them the rest of his life, that he could literally was not able to get rid of all of his inheritance because he had the responsibility as that birthright son to use that inheritance to care for others. Is it possible that that is why he sorrowed? Because he knew that he could not get rid of that inheritance. And if that's what it was required in order to be perfect, then he'd never be perfect on his own. And his problem was that he thought, I have to be perfect in order to follow Christ. I have to make myself perfect, become worthy in order to be worthy to follow Christ. My friends, there are a lot of people in this church, again, myself included, who suffer from that misconception, that, that flaw of scrupulosity, thinking that we must do it ourselves and we have to get ourselves good and righteous and ready in order to follow Christ. Not realizing that we cannot perfect ourselves and that we don't need to. All we need to do is follow Christ. I wonder what would have happened to this young man if he's told Christ, you know what? I'm not sure I can do that yet, but I still want to follow you. My friends, I think it's possible we would know the name of this young man because I think he would have become one of the Savior's great disciples, possibly even taking that 
spot that vacancy in the quorum of the twelve that was going to open up very soon. That call that Jesus gives to him, leave, sell everything that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me, that is a, that's not just a discipleship calling. That is an apostleship calling. And this young man mistakenly, kind of tragically, thinks that he has to be able to do all of those things right now or he can't follow Christ. Friends, he didn't see Christ in that true way that we sometimes also don't see Christ. We see him as setting these standards that are so high and so exacting, and we need to be all in or we're not worthy to follow him. And you guys, that is not true. Jesus beholds this young man and loves him exactly the way he is right now. And he also sees that that thing that is injuring him. I love the idea that sin, I, I think scrupulosity is a sin, but it is a sin that injures us, ourselves. And Christ sees that and wants this young man, wants to free this young man from that. So uh, why was he so sad? Was it because he loved his material possessions so much? No. I think he was so sad because he felt like unless he could follow perfectly all those things Christ had asked him to do, he would not be worthy to follow Christ. It was scrupulosity, not materialism. That was his biggest problem. And he turned away not because he loved his possessions so much, but because he thought he could never be perfect enough. So how do we inherit eternal life, my friends? We stay with Jesus in our imperfection. I'm thinking, in fact, I'm pretty sure Jesus gave this young man this impossible commandment so that he maybe would open his eyes and realize, I don't have to be able to do all these things perfectly. Gave him this impossible commandment so that he absolutely could not do it on his own. Anything else, this young man would have killed himself to do, be able to do on his own, right? But he would never be able to do this one on his own. And that's the one Jesus gives to him so that he would absolutely rely on Christ. Because utter reliance on Christ is how we get eternal life, my friends. Maybe part of that baggage that the camel has to drop in order to get through the eye of the needle is our own wrong ideas about salvation and self-righteousness and thinking that our imperfections make us unworthy to follow Christ. So seeing Christ and believing him, that's what this young man needed to be able to do better. So now also do not forget, we don't know the rest of his story, right? We don't know whatever becomes of this young man. He is such a good young man. I have high hopes for him. I think we might we might see him when we get up there. If we get up there to heaven, I have a feeling we're going to see this good young man there too. How was he blind? He was blind to his own worthiness, his own goodness. He wasn't perfect, but his own goodness and blind to Jesus's grace and compassion and love. So 
another lesson I would love, I, I think we should take from this story. How do we truly behold people in our lives? Do we truly behold people in our lives? And I think if we did, you guys, if we could see people truly, behold them, we would love them more. There would be a lot less uh, divisiveness in the church and in our society. Um, we would love people more if we could behold them, truly behold them. So that is a challenge that Christ gives to us in this story as well. Um, let's move on because I'm running out of time. Blind Bartimaeus. Okay, this story also told in all three synoptic gospels. Here's the picture of this, this man. Uh, we're gonna, we're in, in, in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells a story with two blind men and not just one, but it's the very same story. We're going to, again, look, turn to the Gospel of Mark and read it in this story here. So this story takes place in Jericho. Jesus has now made his way down to Jericho, ready for that last final uh, ascent into Jerusalem. And we're going to, the, the next two stories take place in Jericho. So Jericho is, is, is just a fabulously symbolic place. Uh, in scriptures. It is 826 feet below sea level and is also the oldest city on earth. So the lowest and the oldest city on earth, what a perfect symbol for our fallen world and the experiences we all share in our fallen world. And this story, I think, is meant to be allegorical. I think, I think all of these stories are actually, my friends, all of them are, but this one maybe particularly. And please look for, uh, the, uh, there's more than one blind person in this story, as I think you will note. So let's take a look at this one. Read Mark chapter 10, just turn the page. Um, they came to Jericho, we're starting with verse 46. They came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, excuse me, and a great number of people. So take note of that. A whole bunch of people following and, and watching and, you know, um, uh, you know, accompanying Jesus on this and watching to see what he does and how he interacts with people. A, a blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side, begging. Now, the way they, the way Mark presents his name is really interesting because Bartimaeus, Bar-Timaeus means the son of Timaeus. So that double repeating of his name, Bar-Timaeus, son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus, emphasizing his name. And that word Timaeus means highly prized and honored but he's blind. And, uh, and the life that he's living right now is anything but highly prized and honored. Uh, he's living a very, very different life from our rich young man of the earlier story. Let's talk just a minute about blindness in this ancient world. It was a terrible disability. It was seen to be God's curse and only curable by God um, the worst degradation that you 
could inflict on an enemy would be to blind him. Remember Zedekiah, remember Samson. So to deprive someone of the ability to see was thought to be the very worst thing you could do to a person. Um, blindness was also called the Egyptian plague because down in Egypt, trachoma, an eye disease, was rampant. And it was epidemic. And it had spread through Israel along those trade routes that came from Egypt, went all the way up to um, the northern kingdoms of this ancient world. Um, so as those merchants came through Israel, they brought trachoma with them. And there were many, many, many blind people in Jesus's world. Um, and you think about it, um, I think, I mean, I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to rank disabilities, but um, a person who is deaf could nevertheless support himself by making baskets or, you know, doing a trade. He could go out in the fields and work. Uh, he could manage to support himself and his family if he were deaf. A person who was crippled could even sit at a, at a table and make baskets or pottery and support himself. But a person's who, person who's blind has no way of supporting himself or his family. So in fact, blind people were given authorization, state authorization, if you will, to be beggars. And were given beggars cloaks, a special identifiable cloaks that they would wear that would, um, that would um, tell people passersby that they truly were blind and that they and 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 would signal to those people who were passing by to drop some pennies into their into their beggar's cup um and that's what this man was doing by the side of the road um begging when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth probably hears his voice hears hears the people addressing him he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. Here is an important man going by. Be quiet. Leave Jesus alone. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And, um, you know, just leave him alone. We've seen this scenario play out many times in Jesus's life, right? His apostles thinking that they are sparing him and helping him, keeping him from the very people he has come to bless in his life. And, but this man, I love blind Bartimaeus, my friends. He cried out the more a great deal. He is not dissuaded, is not discouraged by that repudiation, by that um, rejection and the hostile re response of Jesus's followers. He sees Jesus. You guys, in a way, this blind man sees Jesus more clearly than that rich young man saw Jesus. He knows what kind of person Jesus is. He has probably also heard the stories that Jesus can heal blindness, and there is nothing that is going to stop him from getting himself to Jesus. Thou son of David, in that, thou son of David, that is him testifying that he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, this blind man sees Jesus far more clearly than those Jewish religious leaders see him. 
absolutely knows and believes this is our Messiah, that promised Messiah who can heal blindness. Have mercy on me. And I love verse 49. Jesus stood still. You guys, the fact it is true. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, a very important journey that he's on, the world's most important journey. Jesus is on with that weight of the world on his shoulders, with a timetable that he has to keep. But he stands still. He sees somebody who needs him. He hears somebody who needs him, probably doesn't even see him yet. And he stands still. Oh, what an example for us, my friends. And commanded him to be called. Now, this is an interesting thing. Why doesn't Jesus go to this man? He's blind. It's going to be really difficult for him to make his way through this crowd. Why doesn't he go to him? There's something that I think we've seen, if you've been reading carefully, and I'm sure you all have. Um, it, it is not enough. Jesus's power is not sufficient for miracles to be done in this world. It also requires our faith and our agency. And so you'll, if you read these miracles carefully, you will see almost every single one. Jesus requires the person who's seeking that miracle to exercise their own agency, to exercise their own faith. He's saying, Bartimaeus, do you have enough faith to make your way through this crowd who wants to keep you from coming to me? How strong is your faith? And Bartimaeus's faith is that strong. He calls him, and, the, and the, they called the blind man and said to him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And verse 50, I think the most important verse in this story, well, there's two most important verses. Casting away his garment, he rises up and comes to Jesus. So my friends, before he is healed of his blindness, what does he do? He throws away his beggar's cloak, rids himself of that identity and that source of income. You guys, Passover week on this road to Jerusalem, this is, this is the most lucrative week in his year when he will probably earn enough money that will support him for months to come. This man is so sure of Jesus, Jesus's compassion, and Jesus's power, that before he's even healed, he throws that beggar's cloak away. Do we, do we have this kind of faith? You guys think about that. Before the miracle comes, he's getting rid of all of his security, leaving that security and that, and that, and that, that, um, you know, source of livelihood behind his identity behind. So what an amazing man he is. Jesus answered and said unto him, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? And this is another kind of interesting question, right? I mean, here is a blind man, right? Kneeling before him. What do you want me to do for you? And again, Jesus gives us the opportunity to tell him, express our faith in what he can do for us. So I, I love, I love this, this story and what we can learn from it, how we can approach Christ 
how what we need to do to get the miracles and open up the, our eyes the way we need to. The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Now I know in this picture it looks like Jesus touches him, but the text does not say that. This man's faith is so strong that he is healed even without Jesus's touch. And then Jesus says, go your way. Live this life that you've never been able to live. Go see your wife and your children, maybe for the first time. Live this, this beautiful life that you are now going to be able to live. Much easier life because you now can see. But what does this man do? Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. So the very first thing that this man does when he receives his sight is follow Jesus. And, you know, whatever that will, will demand of him, this, this, compare this man with that rich young man who didn't feel worthy to follow Jesus and so deprived himself of the blessings of being one of the disciples of Christ. Artemis sees Jesus, knows him, knows his, that he is not a perfect man, but that you don't have to be perfect to follow Jesus. So rather than go off and follow in his way and live his life, whatever he uh, unfulfilled dreams he might have had as a blind man, he casts all of that aside with his beggar's cloak and follows Christ in Christ's way. I love this story. Okay, my friends, we're going to go so fast because I know we're running out of time. And there's two more stories. Zacchaeus. Um, let's take a look at Luke chapter 19. Okay, this is, a, this is a little bit out of our reading block for this week, but this story fits in so well. Here is another man is also in Jericho. This story took place right at the very same time as Jesus was healing blind Bart, um, Bartimaeus. He meets Zacchaeus. Um, Luke chapter 19, it's the first 10 verses of this chapter. Um, this was this co just um, coincidentally happens to be the very first Bible story that I remember ever learning. Um, when I was a young girl, we lived on Indian reservations. And when I was five years old, there was no kindergarten in the school, um, in, the, in the town where we lived, the public school. And so my mother sent me to the Assembly of God kindergarten. And I remember learning a song, which I will not sing to you because we're running out of time, a song about Zacchaeus. And I'm pretty sure it's the very first Bible story I ever, ever knew because of this song that I learned back then and that I still remember. Um, sadly, my stay in the Assembly of God kindergarten was short-lived. As soon as they found out we were Mormons, they kicked me out of their kindergarten. <laughs> so, But this song has stayed in my mind, and this story has stayed in my heart ever since then. So Zacchaeus also in, lives in Jericho, um, much like that rich young man, he is also very rich and very, very good, as it turns out. He's not physically blind, but he's unable to see because he is short. 
Okay. And so this great story, um, I'm just going to tell it to you because we're running out of time. So Jesus is passing through his town. Now, oh, Zacchaeus is a publican. And so while he is far better than most of the Jewish uh, people in his community, we're going to, we, he, he, we find out later that in fact, he obeys the laws of Moses with far more vigilance and far more exactness than the righteous people, he's been excommunicated because he is a tax collector. And so knows that he'll never be able to see Jesus in the synagogue. And he will do anything to see Jesus. He climbs up in this sycamore tree that, um, so that he can see Jesus as he's passing by. And for um, a prosperous, uh, prominent man to hitch up his robes and shinny up a tree was to heap ridicule and mock and taunting upon himself, even more than he already had uh, by the, the self-righteous townspeople who looked down upon him. Now they can mock him for climbing up a tree, but it turns out <clears throat> that was the best day of Zacchaeus's life. Uh, Jesus passing by, looks up in that tree, sees Zacchaeus, and and um and uh, greets him by name, and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to go to your house. Come down from that tree. I'm going to your house for lunch today. And verse six, Zacchaeus <clears throat> made haste, came down, received him joyfully. And then, of course, everybody's rid of criticizing Christ for eating with the sinner. And Christ points out, well, actually, Zacchaeus points out, and I love that, Zacchaeus is not afraid to point out his own righteousness. And he tells him all the things. I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore it to him fourfold. Jews were only required to pay a tithe to the poor. He gives half of his goods to the poor. They only had to restore twice, double, if they ever accidentally defrauded somebody. He repays fourfold if that ever happens. So this man knows his righteousness, his, his worthiness. Jesus knows his worthiness. And look what he says in verse 9. Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to his house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Here's Zacchaeus, who has been ritually excommunicated from the house of Israel. But Jesus says he is a son of the covenant. In Jesus's mind, he is a member in full fellowship, in spite of the fact that he's been excommunicated. What a beautiful, beautiful story. And what a beautiful way for us to remember that Christ looks at the heart. Okay, Christ looks at our at our internal righteousness and worthiness. Um, this man judged to be unworthy and unwelcome by the self-righteous, hypocritical members of his synagogue has fellowship with Christ, has lunch with Christ.
has this personal relationship with Christ, deserving of all of those Abrahamic blessings in spite of being excommunicated. I love that. And that sycamore tree, my friends, I love Zacchaeus, and I love that he's willing to do anything in order to see Jesus. And I want to ask myself, and I want you to ask yourself, what would you be willing to give up in order to see Jesus? But I love that sycamore tree. What sycamore tree? The sycamore tree that lifted him up above the crowd, above the riffraff, above the the um, sorrows of his life and the rejection of his life and the challenges of his life and the distractions so that he could see Jesus. So think about that. What are the sycamore trees that we have in our lives that can lift us up above um, this world so that we can more clearly see Jesus passing by? You guys, Jesus is passing by every day of our lives. But sometimes we're just so enmeshed in this world. We need to climb up on a sycamore tree. We need something that can lift us up to be able to see him. Okay? So think about that. Now, last story, and I know we're out of time, and some of you are probably going to have to go to church. But this, from the time I first discovered it, this is a story that is not well known but I love it so much. And this woman, I was, I confessed that I was that rich young man, but I'm also this woman with the bent back. This story is told only in the book of Luke. I love Luke for giving us so many stories about women. And this is another one that is only told by Luke. And it's um, a woman with a bent back. It, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity. They were in Luke chapter 13, verses 11 through 17. Spirit of infirmity for 18 years was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. We think probably she had severe osteoporosis or scoliosis. And that was the first thing that I loved about this woman because I also have scoliosis. So it's like, ah, I know this woman. Hopefully, I will never be as as um, impaired as she is, as crippled as she became. And maybe some of you have seen women, like usually it's women. There are a few men that have osteoporosis this severely. But literally, they cannot lift their head to see what's in front of them. All they, all they do, all they can see, their, head, their heads are bowed down so they cannot see what's in front of them. And that's what's happened with this woman. So here is Jesus in her synagogue. And nevertheless, this woman in her crippled state goes to her synagogue faithfully, devoutly, every single Sabbath day and never finds any relief from any of the righteous, pious people, her, her religious leaders, until this day when Jesus comes to her synagogue. When Jesus saw her, he called her to him. Now, this is one of those rare occasions where Jesus doesn't wait for her to ask him for help. And why doesn't he? Because she can't even see Jesus. She doesn't even know he's there. She's so bowed down by this affliction that she has in her life. 
So Jesus calls to her, and then she recognizes his voice. And he says, says unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And again, those words, that faith, that love and compassion, <clears throat> he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So this woman who comes to Jesus, even without being able to see him, because she's so bowed down, but hears his voice, um, goes to him in faith. Again, that leap of faith, that act of faith. Jesus relieves her of this affliction, and she stands up straight and whole again. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus is promptly criticized by um for doing for healing on the Sabbath day. Those Jewish religious leaders, rather than rejoicing in this tremendous, beautiful miracle that has been done to this faithful, devout, good woman who's been in their synagogue for 18 years waiting for a miracle, all they can see is to criticize Christ, right? Blind people everywhere in these stories. Now, this woman also unable to see Jesus um, at the beginning of the story because she was so bowed down. This is, this is where I relate to her so well. There have been times in my life when I have been so bowed down by the um, challenges and struggles and <clears throat> problems that I face in my life, the worries that I have for, for children, um, issues that I'm having in my own life, that I feel like I am like this woman. I become like this bent, this woman with the bent back, only able to see myself and my own problems, unable to see Christ standing right in front of me, ready to take that burden from my back. Remember what Christ said? My yoke is easy. All, all you come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Sometimes we, we forget to do that because we're so consumed and so focused on it. All we can see is our own problems and the issues that we're having. We forget we are blind to Jesus and his love and compassion. And that there he is standing right in front of us, ready to take those burdens from us, to make us straight and tall and whole again. There's a beautiful quote by Chauncey Riddle. Human beings are saved by the grace of Christ. Thus, we may be saved only by binding ourselves to Christ. It is as if our task were to stand straight and tall before Father. But because of the fall, we are broken and twisted. The Savior is our straight and tall splint. If we bind ourselves to him, wrap strong covenants around us and him that progressively draw us up into his form and nature, then we can become righteous as he is and, and can be saved. But without him, we are nothing. Without Christ, my friends, our burdens and our challenges and the problems that we face in our life will overpower us, bend us down so that that is all we can see. 
And we think that that's all there is to our life, are these problems. But there is Christ calling us to him. If we can recognize his voice, sometimes we hear his voice. In fact, I will say often we hear his voice through the words of the loving people around us. Through the words of scriptures, I have heard his voice calling to me, inviting me to take those burdens off through these scripture stories, through this woman, this story. My friends, this story, this woman changed my life as I realized what I was doing to myself by trying to carry these burdens alone and letting them so overpower me that I forgot the other beautiful parts of my life. And I forgot that there are people all around me, most especially my Savior, who is willing to carry those burdens with me. So, so much more we could say about these people, and I hope you have come to love them, every one of them teaching us about something about seeing, the ability and the courage to see Jesus and ourselves and to see others in new and different ways. My friends, that is godliness. And then the courage and the bravery to walk forward even when we don't yet see. Learning to walk in the dark when the answers or the vision or the healing hasn't yet come. My friends, that is godliness. Jesus spent his entire life trying to help us see, to help us see better, to help us see differently, to see each other and to see him. And I pray that we can have eyes to see Jesus in our world, in our lives, that we can find our sycamore trees and truly see each other and ourselves as the beautiful, precious gods in embryo, imperfect gods in embryo that we are. So that first, our opening song, I just want to read the words as we end. And, and that beautiful choir of young people from South Africa who have been learning to see each other differently than what generations have, have uh, the, the, than the blindness of generations that had been imposed on them. I loved seeing that choir singing together. So listen to these words again. How can our minds and bodies be grateful enough that we have spent here in this generous room, we three, this evening of content? Each one of us has walked through storm and fled the wolves along the road. But here the hearth is wide and warm. And for this shelter and light, accept, O Lord, our thanks tonight. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Christy. Um, we will ask uh, Russ Franson to offer a closing prayer. Um, Russ grew up in Centerfield, Utah. At BYU, he met Christy, married her, went to Duke Law School, created a family, and continues to love life. Russ, thank you. Thank you. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the lives of mothers on this Mother's Day. 
we thank thee for the saving roles of Mother Eve and uh, Mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We thank thee for the saving roles of our own mothers in our lives. We thank thee for Christie's presentation today. We thank thee for the Gospels and the New Testament. We pray that thou will bless us with sight and insight, bless us with the desire to be disciples of Jesus and to minister unto the least of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts.